chapter 3, please. Amos chapter 3. We're going to start reading verse 7 of Amos chapter 3. <clears throat> Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret and of his servants, the prophets. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, but who can but prophesy? Publish in the palaces of, at Ashdod, and in the palaces in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves under the mountains of Samaria, and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof, and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they are not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their places. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, An adversary there shall be even around about the, the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palace shall be spoiled. Thus saith the Lord, The shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the two, lion two, and two legs, or a piece of ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out of the out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of the bed, and in Damascus in a couch. He, and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altars shall be cut off, and the fall to the ground, and they and fall to the ground. And I will smite the winter house and the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word, and we do pray that Lord, as we take time to open up the word of God again today that you'd go before us. Lord, we are uh, your people. We need, Father God, for you to feed us from your word. Lord, as your servant, I pray that tonight you would empower me, that, Lord, I might uh, know what it is you would have me, and I might say it, Father God, to your glory. Lord God, the words in my mouth would only be those things that you would have me to say. Father, our hearts might be blessed and refreshed by your word and challenged by it. We might leave tonight knowing that we've been in your presence and rejoicing in the testimony of your word. To us now, Father, through your word, and Lord, I do pray that you meet each and every one of us individually with your word tonight. I'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If an untrained rustic farmer is preaching God's word such as Amos was it means that God must have called him because this wasn't the vocation which Amos had chosen for himself it was chosen for him by the Lord as Amos said in Amos chapter 7 verses 14 and 15 he said I was no prophet neither was I a prophet's son but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruits. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. This was not something that Amos wanted to do. The fact that Amos is preaching and prophesying means that God has something he wants to say. 
No doubt when D.L. Moody began to preach, some people said, what can this uneducated salesman, uh, shoe salesman sound to us? And when Billy Sunday began to hold evangelistic campaigns, exactly this is the sophisticated religious crowd asked, what can a former baseball player teach us? But God used Moody, he used Billy Sunday, and he used Amos to proclaim his word. So it is when God calls a preacher to proclaim his word, it's because the Lord has something important to say, something God wants his people to listen to. God has a message for us to heed. And this is where we are in Amos chapter 3. We come, first of all, tonight in Amos chapter 3 to the inevitable message of the prophet. The inevitable message of the prophet in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, Surely the Lord God will do thing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? Now in the context of, of Amos, Amos chapter 3 verse 7 is speaking of God's coming judgment. And we know that's really what the book is about. From chapter 1, God has been dealing with the nation surrounding Israel, and then he's dealt with the southern kingdom, and now he's dealing with the northern kingdom, those tribes of the north that are rebelling against Almighty God. God is dealing in judgment with particularly the northern kingdom. And Amos chapter 3 is in that context, the context of judgment. And God has revealed this secret to his prophets, this message of judgment to his prophets and it was to be prophesied for years, and had been prophesied rather, for years and years prior to this event of Amos. If you go back through the prophets, you realize that God's been pronouncing this judgment coming for years. He's been preaching through prophet after prophet, and now Amos repeats the same prophecy. And God's been preaching it for years through his prophets so that they have every opportunity to repent. And God especially reveals the secrets of his coming judgment so that men will have time to take heed. Men will have time to sit up and listen. That people will not be caught by surprise when the judgment comes. That's true today. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men can't slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Lord, not willing that any perish, but all become repentance. My goals of judgment is not because people don't deserve the judgment. The reason why God holds off judgment is because God's a God of love. God's a God of mercy. God's a God of grace. And God wants to give mankind opportunity to repent. God's desire is for all men to be saved. And so what he does, he raises up preachers who preach the word of God and he waits as they preach that men's hearts may be turned unto him so the people might be saved. And this is where we're at in Amos chapter 3, verse 7. God has proclaimed this prophecy over and over again to the nations. And now God declares the judgment is coming. And in verse 7 we read, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Now we understand that this does not mean that God does nothing without revealing it to his prophets first. Okay? He says, surely the Lord will do nothing, but he revealed his secret unto his servant, the prophets. It doesn't mean that God 
will do nothing without revealing first the prophets. Simply meaning that God will, God will reveal, what well, God's revealed the prophets first, then he will do something. Okay? Because we know in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5, for instance, we won't take time to read it, but God delivered the truth and the nature of the church from the Testament prophets. It was a mystery that God had not revealed. So we know that God doesn't always reveal all that he's going to do to the prophets. But the idea is that when God does reveal something, then the prophet must speak it. You see, God isn't going to do anything until the prophet speaks. If God's given the message to the prophet, the prophet will proclaim it, then God's going to act. That's the way it works. And if the prophet doesn't proclaim it, then the prophet's to blame here. Because God is about to act and he's to claim the prophecy. And so you read in verse 8, The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? Amos is saying this. Listen, God's given me a message. And don't blame me for the message. I'm only the messenger, but I must proclaim this message. I am compelled to proclaim this message. And the illustration is this, as naturally it is for a man to fear when a lion roars, so it's natural for the prophet to prophesy when God has spoken. Now, if you and I right now were sitting in church and we heard a lion roar in the foyer, <clears throat> you and I would be anxious a little bit, I would assume. Okay? Now, Tim pointed the door. <laughs> he'd be gone. I was thinking he'd be the brave one going to take on the lion for us while we all get out of the building, but... Tim's already gone out the door, so uh, it might be a run for the door, all of us out the door, I assume. But you know, if you hear a lion roar, you're not going to run around, are you? You're not going to just stand there and watch the lion come in. It will cause fear in your heart. And he says, as, as surely as a lion roars will cause fear in your heart, when the Lord God hath spoken to the prophet, can I do but prophesy? Don't blame me for the message. Basically saying, I have no choice. I have to preach this message. When the preacher preaches, thus saith the Lord, Amos is saying, we ought not to blame the prophet. We ought not to criticize the prophet. We ought to listen to the message. And more importantly, obey the message. You see, when, when the word of God goes forth and we hear, thus saith the Lord, the responsibility that we have as believers, the responsibility the preacher has is simply to preach. The responsibility we have as listeners is to listen and obey. That's the point that Amos is making. Here is a message. This message has been preached, preached, and preached. And God is not going to act until he's let the prophets preach and he's preached this. And I'm preached because I have to. Now listen. One commentator put it this way, it was no accident of vocational choice that he was proclaiming God's age. God called him. And it was no accident of international diplomacy that Israel and Judah were facing judgment for they had sinned against God. Here's the two realities. Amos is preaching not because he just woke up one morning and chose to go out and preach, but God had called him. And the nation of Israel weren't facing judgment simply because somebody had slipped up uh, in the diplomacy uh, with the nations around about them between Egypt and Syria. No, it wasn't a case of that. It was a case of the fact they'd sinned. 
So Amos is preaching judgment because the nation of Israel has disobeyed God. Amos preached for God had called him to do so. When God calls, we must obey. Today as preachers, it's not ours to choose what we say. Those of us who stand in this pulpit, it's not for us to choose what we say. We're called upon to preach the word. You know what Paul said? Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Preach the word. Faithfully proclaim God's truth. No matter what it says, no matter uh, what the message might be, you and I have a responsibility. Uh, we have a responsibility to preach, to preach the word, but we as individuals, as believers, have a responsibility to preach the word, don't we? To preach the truth. Pastor Kendall talked about it this morning. Preach the gospel. Not water down the gospel, not, not mollycoll the gospel, not change the gospel, but to preach the gospel. Preach the adulterated word of God to a lost and dying world. God has called and we must go and when we go, we must go with his message. Preach the word. And when the word of God is preached, let you and I not be guilty of rejecting it because we don't like what it says. Because that's exactly what Israel's sin was. They didn't like what was being said, so they rejected it. If they'd only listened to the prophets, if they'd only listened to the word of the Lord, they wouldn't be standing on the brink of judgment. They'd be dwelling in the land in peace and safety. But they rejected the message of the Lord, and now they're facing judgment. And we ought not to be guilty of the same. We ought to listen to God's word, and we ought to obey it, take heed to the word of the Lord, or else we'd be guilty the sin of Israel. Secondly, not only does here see the inevitable message of the prophet, but we see God calls for witnesses. Secondly, God calls for witnesses. In 9.10, publish in the palaces of Ashdod, analysis in the land of Egypt, and say, assemble yourselves under the mountains of Samaria, and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof, and depressed in the midst thereof. Know not to do right, saith the Lord who shore up violence and robbery in their palaces. In his day, prophet, the prophet Isaiah called in heaven and earth to witness against Judah. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2 says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. So it's not unusual for prophets to call witnesses to come and testify to God's judgment upon his people. In the case of Isaiah, he called upon the heavens. He called upon the heavens to give witness and the earth to give witness to God's judgment. Amos, though, in his uh, call, he summons the heathen nations. He summons the Gentile nations to witness against the northern kingdom. Witness against Israel, whose capital was in Samaria. Notice what he says in verse 9, Publish in the palace of Ashton and in the palace of the land of Egypt. And I say, assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria. They were to come and they were to witness. In fact, they were to take part in the judgment, partake in the judgment of the northern kingdom. They were to converge upon Samaria and they were to witness and be partakers in the judgment upon the northern kingdom. And notice what they were to witness. In verse 9, it says, Assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria 
and behold the great tumults in the midst. Have a look what's going on in Samaria, in Israel. And note the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. He says, look at them. Have a look at what they're doing. Have a look at their behavior. Have a look at their wickedness. Testify to the, the, the disgraceful position that they find themselves in. One commentator said this, the reputation of injustice and brutality would be resented by the Israelites who would consider themselves in every way morally superior to those God had summoned witnesses. The shame of this is this, that Israel are God's people. Have the word of God. They, they know right from wrong. They ought to be living testimonies, living witnesses to the around about them. But now God is going to call the heathen who are morally bankrupt to witness the behavior of his people and judge them for their wickedness. The wicked are wicked. You see, the sin of Israel was so great that even the nations around them were appalled by their behavior. You know, it's tragic, indeed, it's humiliating. It's an unsaved world catch best Christians sitting. You know, it's really bad, isn't it, when the world judges us for our behavior, when the morally bankrupt world judges us behaviors being morally bankrupt. It's a poor testimony. It happens all the time, and we live in a world today that we're so skeptical about Christianity because Christianity is so corruptively. And that's not a good word, but they made that one up. Has acted, acted so immoral and acted immorally in place and acted, their behavior is shameful. And you and I can be that you and I can be guilty of having the world judge us for our behavior. Because it's amazing the world has a standard for Christianity that Christians don't even have for themselves. The world has a perception of what a Christian should be, and when you and I don't expect a Christian to live, they call us hypocrites. And right so often. And it's a shame when that happens. It brings reproach upon the name of Christ. It brings reproach upon the God of Jesus. And it makes it very difficult for you and I to share the gospel with the lost and dying world because our testimony gets in the way of our witness. I mean, think about it. What happened to Abraham when he twice lied he things about his wife, Sarah? In Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. Well, the same phrase is used by both kings. In Genesis 12, 18, he says this, And Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Here is an ungodly king, and the same is true in chapter 20, an ungodly king comes to him and says, Why did you lie to me? He ruined his testimony by telling a lie. It was only a half-truth, we know, but it was a lie. What about David's adultery with Bathsheba? In 2 Samuel 12, 14, it says, Great occasion to the enemies that, 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 that David's adultery with Bathsheba gave great occasion to his enemies and the enemies of the Lord to blame. David's sin with Bathsheba not only had repercussions for David, repercussions for Bathsheba, repercussions for the baby that was born and indeed for Bathsheba's husband, 
who he had put to death, and David's testimony as king in Israel, it brought reproach upon the name of God, so much so that the nations blasphemed God because of David's sin. Now, if you were old enough to remember the late 1980s, you'll remember the media ministry scandals that brought great shame upon the church, these so-called fundamental organizations in America which uh, were caught out that these men were having affairs with secretaries and were ripping off financially uh, people and so on. There was all this uproar in the 1980s and it brought great shame upon the, uh, the, on the church and upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and people of Christianity. And whenever prominent servants of God fall into sin, the news media seem to enjoy telling the story. And the truth is this, beloved, when we act in a way that even the unsaved world judges us for, then we bring reproach upon the name of the Lord, we bring reproach upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we make it impossible, or at the very least we make it very difficult for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the unsaved world. You and I need to live a reproach. You and I need to live before the unsaved world in a way that does not bring reproach upon the name of Christ. And sometimes that means lifting our standards higher than we even expect we ought to be lifting our standards. Because I'm amazed about how the world understands what they think a Christian should be and how shocked they get when a Christian acts contrary to how the Christian should act, even though they themselves have no problem with their behavior. They don't see anything wrong with that behavior. In fact, the world today uh, and its justification of behavior shocks us because of the things the world wants to do. But it amazes me how shocked that world can be when a Christian does that which they perceive is unchristian. And that was Israel's problem. That was Israel's situation. They were bringing reproach upon the name of God. So Amos calls upon the Philistines, that's Ashdod, and the Egyptians to witness what was going on in Samaria. He says, have a look and see the tumults. So they've done how they've oppressed in the midst thereof. See what they've done in regard to uh, storing up violence and robbery in their places. Have a look. You see, the of Israel weren't interested in obeying God's law. Rather, they were eagerly and unjustly robbing the poor. They were amassing as much wealth as possible themselves. They built houses, filled them with expensive furnishings, and in luxury, while the poor of the land sulk in chapter 3 and verse 15. And I will smite the windows of the summer house, and the house of ivory shall perish. Great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 15. Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan that are in the mountains of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, and say to their masters, bring and let us drink. Chapter 5 and verse 11. For as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor, and ye from burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. Chapter 6, verse 4 that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David 
that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. This was the people. This leaders of Israel. This was uh, what they were doing. They were robbing the people. They were living in luxury. The poor were getting poorer. And the law of Moses made it clear that the nation was obligated to take care of the widows, take care of the orphans, take care of the poor, take care of the strangers. You can read about that in Exodus 22 and Exodus 23. But they'd not obeyed the Lord. They'd been taught better. They should have known better. They should have lived better. They should have, they should have been a, a testimony and a witness of the kind of behavior that is expected of God's people. But look at the terrible indictment that God gives them in verse 10. For they know not to do right. They have the law of God, the witness of the prophets and the priests and the Levites. But they know not to do good. They have so long been doing the wrong thing that they no longer know right from wrong. They were so bound by their greed and idolatry, it was impossible for them to do what was right. Like many people today, they were addicted to influence. They were addicted to idolatry. They were addicted to sin. They didn't lack the necessities of life. So long as they themselves enjoy the luxuries of life, they didn't care about other people. No wonder there was an unrest in the land. For the possession of wealth never satisfied the hungers of the heart. I read an old Chinese proverb that said this, to pretend to satisfy one's desires by possessions is like using a straw to put out a fire. To pretend to satisfy one's desires by possessions is like using a straw to put out a fire. Even more tragic than their greed was their arrogance. They lived in fortresses so they and their possessions were safe. They're a lot like the farmer in Luke chapter 12, you know, where the farmer had a good year and he tore down his barns, he built bigger barns, and he said, up, eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow you may die. Well, they thought they were safe. They thought they were secure. They discovered to their detriment was that their wealth could not stop their death. They were about to die at the hand of the Assyrians for their failure to live for God. You know, the same attitude, the attitude that the Israelites had is often the attitude today. In fact, it's the attitude of the church of Laodicea which is prevalent today in God's people. Found in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's our Western culture, isn't it? We live in a culture today whereby we have need of nothing. We, we, we live in a culture today by uh, the truth is we many have more than we really need and we still don't think we have enough. But it's the attitude today that prevents many from getting saved. They, people in the Western world don't get saved because they think they have the answer. They think the possessions, they think that wealth, they think that sin, they think that behavior is going to satisfy them and they don't need God because they, uh, God is irrelevant. They've got all that they need. 
That's why when we read about India, we read about uh, Papua New Guinea, and read about other places, third world countries, you read about souls getting saved because you see they have nothing and they know they need God. But in affluent societies, man has so much, mankind doesn't need God. And unfortunately, it's bled so much into the church that we forget that we need God every day. And we can be guilty of relying upon possessions, relying upon what we have, rather than relying upon God. We think we have liberty to do as we please today, when the truth is that you and I simply have freedom to do the will of God. We have liberty to do as we please. We're not set free just to do whatever we like. When you and I got saved, we were not set free so that I could just enjoy this life and, and, and forget about God. You and I were set free so that you and I could have the freedom to do the will of God. That was the nation of Israel. They'd been delivered from captivity out of Egypt to deliver to the land so they might have freedom to serve Almighty God, not freedom to serve themselves. And you and I have been set free, beloved, to serve Almighty God, not to serve ourselves. We've got to obey God and live as His children to live. Then thirdly, not only the inevitable message of the prophets, and then we only have God calling the witnesses, but we see thirdly God calls for judgment. In verse 11 to 15, it says in verse 11, Thus saith, and therefore thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even around about the land, and shall bring down strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Amos announced that the kingdom of Israel would fall, that the enemy would come, and the great city of Samaria would be plundered. The strength would be brought down, it says in verse 11. It's an adversary shall be around about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and the houses shall be spoiled. This happened in 722 B.C. When the Assyrian army invaded from the north and came down and overthrew the northern kingdom, taking captive the people of the north, many of them being put to death, many of them being scattered throughout the kingdom, and nothing being left uh, effectively of them. Eventually what happened is many of them intermarry, and they turned to Samaria and became known as the Samaritans. That mixed marriage people that were in there in the midst of Samaria when Christ was on earth, Jews would not go anywhere near them. This was the remnant of the northern kingdom. The people of Israel had plundered one another. Now God uses pagan Gentile nations to plunder them. We see the truth here, don't we, of Galatians, that you and I reap what we sow. And they were now reaping what they had sown. They had sown wickedness. They would sown unrighteousness. They'd sown wealth and prosperity for themselves, but they had neglected Almighty God. They'd served idols rather than serving the living and true God. How they were going to reap what they had sown. To illustrate this, Amos buzzed from his experience as a shepherd in verse 12. Thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs, or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed in Damascus in a cash. According to Exodus 22, verses 10 to 13, if a lion takes a sheep 
and tears it in pieces, the shepherd had to bring the remnants of the sheep back to his master to prove that the lion had truly eaten the sheep. That was to ensure that the owner of the flock didn't lose sheep to his shepherds. Okay, they didn't just take a sheep, store it away somewhere and come back and say, lion got one of his sheep today. And over a period of time, the shepherd ends up with less sheep than his sheep herder ends up with. Okay, the owner ends up with less sheep than the shepherd. The shepherd is storing away. So if a lion take them, you have something back, either the legs or you had to take back the ear, you had to take something that it was indeed dead, that the lion had taken the sheep. And so Amos says that this is the fact here. That as the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs, or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out of the dwelling in Samaria in the corner of a bed, in Damascus, in a couch. And so this Amos comparison then makes the sarcastic point that when invasion strikes, Israel's de- devastation will be so complete that all that will be rescued is, pr- uh, proof, of de- is proof of death in the form of scraps of furniture. That's what he says. He says, all that will be left is a piece is, of, of Samaria is the corner of a bed or a little bit of a couch. That's all that's going to be left of you. When God is finished with you, there will be nothing left. Oh, by the time Syria is finished with the land of Israel, only a small remnant would be left, and that's the Samaritans. Amos 2 and Amos 3.8 said, the lion was about to roar. Amos 3.8 says, The lion hath roared. Who will not fear? The lion has roared. The message has gone forth. Now you need to fear. Amos made it clear that the invasion of the Assyrians was the work of God. But that when those Assyrians come down, the nation of Israel needs to know that this was a God. He was punishing them for their sins. Look in verse 13. Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transfer of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Beth. The horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. He says, I shall visit them. This, that the Assyrians will do the work, but it's me judging, God says. And Israel's entire man-made religious system will be abolished. So I will visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altars will be cut off and fall to the ground. Nobody would be able to hold onto the horns of the altar to protection as they'd done in 1 Kings chapter 1. The horns of the altar would be cut off. For two centuries, God in his long-suffering had covered the people of the northern kingdom as they participated in idolatrous practice, as they participated in idolatrous religious worship, about disobeying God and using his law, but now the end would come. Like Israel of old, nations today measure them by their wealth. You know, we talk about today the gross national products become the indicator of success and security. If a nation has wealth, then it's secure. The rich get richer, poor get poorer. As people people worship the golden calf of today more than ever. 
and greedily exploit one another. You know, when I was growing up, you never heard announced on the radio the share prices. You never heard on the radio anything about the price of the dollar and uh, what the exchange rate was. You never heard any of that. You never talked about those things. But today, we're obsessed with that as a nation and as a people. And the Western world is obsessed by that. And people are really exploited by other people for the sake of wealth. But you know, it doesn't take long for God to wipe out the idols of the people and the unnecessary luxuries that control lives. As God did for Ahaz to Israel in verse 15, I'll smite the winter house with the house, and the house of Ire shall perish. The great houses shall have an end at the Lord. So too, the wealth of mankind will one day be their downfall. See, our focus must not be on our wealth. Our focus today, beloved, must not be upon our luxury. Our focus should not be on any idol of mine, but our focus today should be on the glory of the Lord. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto thee. God must be first and last in lives and everything in between. Judgment day is coming for our world, just as it did for Israel. And in that day, God will wipe out the idols of mankind and Christ will stand upon the Mount of Olives and Jesus Christ will reign from Jerusalem, King of kings and Lord of lords. And all of man's wealth and all of man's religion and all of luxury and all of man's amass will be in naught. For the only ones are those who know God. It's Christ, the Savior. We as believers should not wait for that day. Beloved, you and I need to lay aside any idols in our lives. You and I need to seek to serve the Lord. Let's take heed to his word. Let's obey his will. We may see his blessing on our lives and our ministry. The Lord has spoken. And his desire is for us to listen as much as he might for his people to listen in Amos's day, God's desire is for you and I to listen today. He desires for you and I to put away our idols. Just to live for him. Now Amos hasn't finished speaking yet. He's got two more warnings about to give in the following chapter. But for today, let's heed the warning of Amos. Let's seek the Lord in our lives. Let's make sure he's first and last and everything in between. Gracious Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Father God, for the challenge from Amos. Lord, we know that you are talking directly to the nation of Israel, directly about their unwillingness to listen to the prophets and their passion for idolatry and wickedness and luxury. But Lord, you told us in the New Testament that all of this Old Testament was given for our learning, for our understanding. Lord, may we learn from the mistakes of Israel. And may we seek you first and last and everything in between in our lives day by day that our witness and testimony to you might be strong 
and untarnished to your glory. Commend your word to our hearts now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now take a hymn books and we're going to